Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome into episode nine. First, I want to just say thank you for listening to the podcast. Feedback has been amazing. We've had tons of subscribers on iTunes. We've had tons of reviews on iTunes. Currently, we're still sporting a five-star review out of several of you who have commented saying you love the podcast. So I just want to thank you right now where you're listening, just in your car, running, hiking, working out, whatever you're doing while you're listening to the podcast. I just want to thank you. It's my goal to bring you the best interviews possible for landscape photography and and, and just help you with your landscape photography overall. Today in episode nine, we have an amazing guest, Aaron Bobnick. I've talked to Aaron several times over my photography career, and it's always super enlightening what she has to say about photography. And, and today in the podcast, I did want to ask her a lot about landscape photography. For example, we're going to be getting into like color theory. We're going to be getting into things like when is a photo ready to share and when is it done? Other things like composition and, and some of the compositional designs that you can see in nature that occur naturally and how to frame those up. So there's tons of meatiness in this podcast today. But I also wanted to talk to her about the California fires. You know, we're about a year out from when those happened and kind of impacted Aaron's life forever. And I wanted to get her feedback on some of the things that happened during those events and then the creative process going through an event like that that can be traumatic for a lot of people and what the creative space is after that. So I want to thank Aaron for coming on first and foremost and being vulnerable, sharing those things and also helping us with photography through this episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We have Aaron Bobnick on the podcast today. And, and Aaron and I have talked a few different times in the past Um and I'm really excited to have her back on the podcast to talk again about a few different topics. Erin, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks, David. It's always a pleasure. You always have such great questions and invariably leads to great conversations. Let's hope it goes that way again today. I'm sure it will. So you were involved in the fires that happened in California. Um, a couple years now? Was that a couple years ago? No, it's not even a year yet. Okay. That so was it's pretty, pretty fresh. And I know you've done a few different interviews talking about that experience. Um, what what was that like, first of all, going through that? Uh, yeah, I've actually <laughs> done something like six or eight interviews on this uh, at sure. this point, so I'll be brief. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was... Um, uh, it was mostly pretty terrifying and then pretty catastrophic for me. It was very, very difficult. One of the most difficult things I've ever gone through to lose everything like that. So very painful experience, but also, um, you know, you, you can't help but look at the silver lining <laughs> at things like 
when things like these happen. And I think it also put me in touch with um, my values um, in a lot of uh, ways. And I, and I'm thankful for that. And it also just, of course, made me incredibly grateful to have the things that I do, including my health and, um, you know, to be alive and uh, to have, have what is really a great life. And, and I, so I, at least I, I have that experience to thank for bringing those realizations forward for me. When you go through something like that and we bring it back to photography and, and work life and, and trying to continue to be creative in something like photography, like what is your mental space like for creativity when you're going through or coming out of something like that? Well, you know, it's interesting in this particular case, um, my output, my photography, my creativity since the fire hasn't really been um, contrary to what you might think. Like a lot of artists deal with these sorts of things by producing work about it or, or, you know, exploring that idea mm-hmm. and coming up with something new um, that, that, that is fueled by the experience. And I think in, in my case, it's been kind of the opposite in a way. Um, because in, in what happened to me here wasn't just something that was really horrible, like losing a loved one or something like that. It was, it was, it was horrible. And it was also, uh, it left me bereft of kind of everything I, I owned that reminded me of who I am. So it was almost like a total loss of identity for me, you know, mm-hmm. it everything in your home with it goes a sense of identity, you know, from what you get from being reminded of where you've been and what you've been doing, what you care about, all those little things in your house that are markers of your identity that are tangible and visible, you know, when they're gone, um, you you do kind of, I kind of felt uh, really at sea. And like, I really just needed to get back in touch with me. <laughs> um, and I know, and it's not that those things are, uh, you know, material possessions, and it's not really on that level. It's really just, these are the things that accumulate that accrue through your, your life that you have. And then when you don't have them anymore, it is actually very, um, very shocking. So what I, I think I've been going through in my photography recently is more so a process of trying to stay in touch with myself through connecting with what I do have left, which is mostly my photos and my photography or my approach to photography. You know, I, um, I didn't lose any of my photos thanks to good backup strategies. So I still Mm -hmm. have those. (laughs) So I think the loss has made me want to just double down on who I am. So my photography hasn't really been an outlet for reinventing myself as an artist or anything like that, or trying to change things up really. It's lately, it's been, been more about bringing back something of, of, of me of what I need to, to have a sort of touchstone for myself. So I've been processing lots of really old photos that I never processed lots. I've, I've put out more uh, photo, uh, photos in the last uh, month, I think, than I did in the two years before that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and I've been really enjoying going back to places that I know that I do a lot of photography in, um, because I still have those places, you know, it's, uh, that's something that I know and that is familiar to me. Right. Um, so I think it's, that's been the, the creative, um, sort of channel that I've been going through. When you look at your photos, like you said, going back and reproducing or, or editing a lot of those and putting them out or taking new photos, you say, getting back in touch with yourself, do you see a change in creative style 
No, that, that's what I was saying. I feel like um, the choices that I'm kind of known for and the things that I like to do a lot, I'm really going for those again. You know? right. <laughs> like old school Aaron coming back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or just, you know, just really sort of doing what I love and going back to those older photos and um, going to the places that I know, not necessarily recreating the same photos by any means, um, but also not really uh, on the same trajectory as I was before the fire, which was very experimental. You know, I've, I've kind of pulled back on that f- for the time being. Has it changed your workload at all? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm so, um, so much just trying to get caught up again. I had to um, cut out a lot of workshops that I had planned just because I simply could not administrate them. So I really paired it down to what I knew I could handle. Um, and uh, fortunately, you know, I do a lot of writing for Photo Cascadia. And fortunately, the team was very understanding and uh, let me skip a couple of months. And, you know, um, it's just been a, an enormous amount of demand, uh, a lot of demands on my time that didn't used to be there, things that I'm trying to take care of. And um, I'm, I'm getting through it, though, and it's uh, going really well, I, sh- I should say. I, I still have a lot going on, and I'm, I'm just on the road all the time doing all the stuff that I love. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not getting as much sleep as I would like. <laughs> <laughs> aren't, aren't we all? Isn't that all of our problem? <laughs> it probably is, yeah. <laughs> Now, one last question that I wanted to ask about that is the community that kind of rallied around you. You know, we all saw topics of people setting up a GoFundMe for you, uh, people reaching out, making sure you're okay. What was that like for you seeing kind of like the photography community rally around you to make sure you were okay and and to kind of try to provide for you in that time in the best way possible. That was overwhelming and probably the one thing more than any other that really got me through the the, the darkest part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out of nowhere and I was absolutely blown away. People from all over the world just doing the kindest things, you know, not only the GoFundMe stuff, but people were sending books and cards and just see, just a few weeks ago, I got a, um, the photographer, Michael Fry sent yeah. me a, a quilt that one of his followers had made when she heard about my plight through him. Um, just all kinds of, and she made the quilt for me, you know, <laughs> um, just all sorts of really touching uh, things like that, that uh, uh, I think really is what um, kept me from uh, going to a, a, a truly dark place that I might not have gotten out of because it, it was it was pretty bleak for a while there. That has to be humbling, though, seeing those things come in from all over the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, I've, I already am used to having sort of a, uh, a higher profile that brings in a lot of interesting, you know, um, communications. And I, sure. I used to have my office, um, listed on, uh, Google, um, people used to send fun little presents every now and then. So, um, that was really, that's, it's not something I'm unfamiliar with, but but this was on a scale that was absolutely overwhelming. And it wasn't just fans. It was people who didn't even know my work. You know, all they knew is that this was a photographer and, um, and this is a community and, you know, they wanted to rally 
around a photographer. So it was just it was next level, it really was. Locations versus landscapes is something you've talked about and you've written about actually uh, in blog posts. And I just wanted to know what what do you classify as the difference between locations versus a landscape? Well, a location is basically a set of coordinates. It's a piece of land. (laughs) And a landscape is an idea. It's a concept. It's a construct. Um, so uh, a landscape is something that you make and that you, you bring ideas to, um, or it's something that you see, but nonetheless, it's, it's a package that, that includes your own ideas about that land. Uh, and so that article that I wrote about locations versus landscape was trying to encourage people to think about, um, the, think about what we're doing our photography landscape photography more uh, deeply and on a more meaningful level and to allow that to be sort of a a springboard for more um, creative and and personally expressive photographs. And so at the end of the article, I had something like eight tips for how, how that can work, how you can Mm -hmm. through this um, way of looking at landscapes, um, you know, you can actually, uh, find yourself in in that process a lot more easily rather than um, thinking that the land itself is where the value lies and putting you know putting the highest value on the land itself because that will then will dictate a lot of creative decision making once you're uh, outside with your camera that's what you think is that oh well this you know this is going to be able to lead to a great photo because I'm in a great place Right, I think that's the reverse of thinking. This could lead to a great photo um, because I'm feeling inspired. You know, <laughs> I'm having yeah, yeah. ideas. It reminds me of something. You know, is there a point in which there's a transition there? Like you get off the plane, it's kind of like a location, and then once you take your first composition, then then it switches to a landscape in your mind. Um. Well, that's a good question. I think I have been in situations where I've I've come somewhere and I've had to shake off the idea of of it that I had before I went there. You know, right. so I'm not actually absorbing the place at the moment. Instead, I'm sort of living in those ideas that I preconceived ideas that I had about it. And in that case, yeah, I, I, I often recommend to students that you know whatever that shot is that kind of was in your mind, just take it and get it out of the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get, it, get it over with. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes I do. I, I and I'll come to a place and there's something about it that I had in mind, and it's usually not. Um, a particular view. I, I don't go for those so much, but it might be a particular aesthetic or um, a certain type of feature, like a certain type of plant that I want to find, or I want to find some ice in this place or something like that. And and even in that case, you know, I'm still kind of fixated on these things that I hope to find. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and sometimes you do find those places, but more oftentimes than not, even in my own experience, like you go out looking for one particular thing and it just turns out that you sometimes get frustrated looking for it mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of ruins the experience. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even just have to be I mean, the simplest example that, um, you know, most 
beginning photographers will know is if they are trying to go and uh, find a particular view or even a particular composition that they'd like to practice and the conditions are not good for that particular composition, you know, and serious frustration sets in. (laughs) (laughs) And I, uh, you know, I see that a lot and that's, that's when I just say to people, well, if you, um, whether you tell yourself there's a, there's a shot for you here or there is not a shot for you here, you're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know you're right. <laughs> it just may not be the shot that you thought was here for you. What's leading to that growing, I feel like it's growing, the growing con or idea of that there's a shot here, this is my preconceived idea, and I'm kind of not wavering from it. You know, that's just not fun. (laughs) Um, And creativity starts from having fun, I believe. So once you're in that mode where um, you're you're very specifically targeting something, it may have followed a creative impulse. And then, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you you aren't going to be having a ton of fun unless you're getting what you want, you know. Um, So I, I may certainly have shots where, I, I found something just through following my own nose and by having a, sort of an, a, an epiphany or just by seeing something, you know, and and then it locked me onto an idea like a, well, I was like a pit bull. <laughs> like, like, yeah. I must figure out how to do that, you know. Um, and and so it started from this creative impulse, but it, then it did definitely become a, a you know, very deliberate project. And it may or may not be fun at that point, but it was fun to begin with at least. <laughs> when when you step into that mindset of the creative process and you kind of get rid of that preconceived notion, what is going on in your mind? Like what's your creative workflow for something like that? Uh, you gotta have fun. Okay, so I, I like to play around. And sometimes if, I, if I'm really just um, not feeling it, uh, it, exploration is my go-to. So move my feet. You know, if, if where I'm at is just whatever not speaking to me, move around, walk around. Uh, that's the first thing that I do. And usually that gets me seeing and thinking, it get, it, you know, get some oxygen pumping through, your brain comes alive. Um, and then, uh, it's just a matter of playing. So I may even just play with my, my hands in the shape of a square, you know, the old fashioned like composition thing. I'll just do that a little bit. And then eventually maybe the phone a little bit. And then the big kit comes out, you know, when I really start to lock on to an idea. But usually what happens in these cases is it starts off as you have no idea. You're just playing around and then you kind of get an idea. And then the idea kind of turns into an obsession and the obsession turns into a photo that you never could have predicted to begin with. Is it different in a place like we talked about before we started recording that you're going into the Dolomites in just a couple of days? Is it different in the place that you're familiar with or is it easier to be creative in a place that you've never been before? Oh, I don't think there's one answer to that because okay. it goes both ways. You know, sometimes sure. in a place that I know really, really well, um, I have all kinds of ideas because I know it so well. And I, I know exactly uh, what I might be able to do there um, without really even having to walk around much. 
the flip side of that is um, because I've walked everywhere, sometimes I'm less inclined to do it. You know? yeah. And that process is important. You know, it's so easy to say, oh, I know what's over there. I've shot that before. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hey guys, real quick, I just wanted to pause the podcast right now to tell you about today's sponsor for episode nine is visualwilderness.com. Visual Wilderness is a website where you can get so many resources from photographers and how to shoot better photos, articles on, on different techniques in photography, and even whole courses that you can have and, and purchase to help you improve in-field photography and also post-processing workflows. I'm one of the contributors on that site and right now with a limited time discount code of David33, you can get that information for 33% off to help you improve your photography. They also have subscription deals that are going on right now. If you want any of that information, you can find it in today's show notes at davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Aaron and find the links to all those things that we just discussed for today's sponsor. Also, we're about to talk about tons of of information with Erin that she's written on for articles that she's posted on her site. To get links to all those articles, you can also go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Erin. I think for me, I'm going to take a, a selfish turn in this because this is something that I really struggle with in my own photography, and I'm sure people can echo the same thing is the ideal of color theory. And actually one of my friends, we were sitting up at an overlook in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And he was, he had just read something you had wrote, written on color theory. And I was just like, dude, I just, I'm not grasping it. I don't get it. <laughs> so can you please enlighten me? I know it's a meaty topic, but enlighten me on the idea of color theory. Yeah, well, my uh, article, which is by far my most popular article, that thing went absolutely viral. Uh Um, It it regards post-processing. So uh, it's not the sort of information that you go out into the field and you necessarily, you know, try to force your images into some theoretical construct that's not what it's about so mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what you're thinking and that that would be the reaction that i would have as well um rather what it is is the subtle changes that you can make in post-processing to shift hues to subdue hues to bring out hues to um not only harmonize a color palette but also to help your composition help bring out your composition so the article covers, I think I forgot now, but f- five or seven different um, approaches that I tend to use that are all derived from color theory, um, but mm-hmm. I dump the theory entirely in the article. It's uh, 
there is no jargon in there. There is no, um, you know, analysis and science and all of that. I just, I just ditched all of that and just went with the takeaway points that I actually find useful and then I actually use. So for example, simplification, something like that. You know, if you have a whole bunch of colors in your image, um, the eye is going to jump around uh, and find them. And if they are, if they are kind of clashing with each other, it has a just sort of discordant feel um, and it can feel really, really busy. Uh, likewise, if you have warm anomalous color in an image, um, and yeah, it happened to be there, but uh, if it's not the cool part of the image, you, your viewers are going to lock onto that and they're going to be taken away from the cool part of the image. So in those sorts of situations, I would subdue those colors um, or even shift them closer to neighboring colors so those areas, <clears throat> excuse me, don't stand out so much and just sort of simplify the palette. Uh, I do that a lot. Basically, just sort of evening things out so that the the composition can come forward. Are you working with color tones and in, in terms of complementary colors? Trying to do that? Are you shifting like vibrance and saturation and hues primarily? Well, well, it's all of those things. So, okay. Um, in some cases, um, I do recommend a couple of different palettes. Um, and I think this is in the article, I'm pretty sure, but I teach this in my seminars and, and workshops. But in general, uh, uh, complementary and split complementary palettes are the easiest to find in nature. So those are mm -hmm. the ones that are, that are already very much within the context of nature, easy to find, um, and you don't have to shift much to make them work. Um, and... Where I use that is I, I show in my article how you can get an automated analysis of your color palette using Adobe Color Online. Just run a JPEG through it and, and it'll um, map onto a color wheel where your, your main colors fall. And you can kind of see what the pattern is. Are they running right across the wheel like in a complementary pattern? Or they, do they look like a Y, uh, which is more of a split complement? And in, and in either of those cases, or an analogous one is the other, but that, that just means all the dots are kind of in one area. And those three actually are the most common and easiest to, to work with. Um, so if you're in any of those, those realms already, um, uh, it's just a simple matter of refinement. However, if you've got one of these dots that's sticking out like a sore thumb, <laughs> that might be the, the color to keep a close eye on. Where is it in the image? Is it an important part of the image? Because it's not in sync with, with, the, with the, it's not harmonizing with the other colors probably. So that could work if that's an area where you want to have a little bit of a jarring effect, where you want the eye to go, then maybe that's going to work for you. Uh, if not, that might be one that you shift towards, uh, just shift the hue and it'll just pu push in a little bit of um, some other hue that'll bring it closer to uh, the harmony. You've, you've gone through the process, you've shifted your your hues you've made other edits to the photo when is a photo ready to share mm. well in my view uh, a photo isn't ready to share until i feel as though it's got staying power for me um what is that to you yeah so <laughs> recently i was at a conference and um during a panel discussion one someone in the audience asked how do you know when a photo is good and um, someone's reply was, well, you know, I always tell my students that it's when a photo has stopping power. And I said, when, when I added 
my thoughts. I said, uh, okay, uh, I would I would agree with that, but I would take it one step further and say that you know, stopping power, a lot of photos can have that. They can be visually arresting. They can be kind of impactful. But then when you see them the second time, they don't grab you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it's it's it, they can grab your eyeballs at once, but they won't get you the second time. So the ones that keep kind of grabbing me. So what I like to do is I call it the incubation period. I take my photos, I process them, and I put them away for a while. And then I take them back out and I look at them again. And if they they really grab me in, anew and they seem to surprise me again, and then that's probably one that I'm going to like and I'm eventually going to release that one. And all of this process um, follows a, another process of incubation where after I've taking the photo, I put it away for an even longer period usually before I will even try to process it because that that narrows it down a lot right there. Going and if you're still just fresh off of a trip and you're off you're feeling that buzz of <laughs> the awesome experience, yeah. it can be hard to kind of be objective. How important is that self critique process? for photographers? That's a really good question. I think it's so important. These days with social media being the sort of hamster wheel of production, I think too many photographers are being sucked into this idea that they need to stay relevant. They need to stay present. They need to constantly pump out new content. And that doesn't encourage that kind of self curation that leads to evolving as an artist. I think it's just so important for you to kind of take a step back and really think about what you're doing and which of the photos are not just impactful and going to get likes on social media, because quite frankly, a lot of them will. That's once you get beyond your beginning years in in photography, you'll be able to pump out impactful stuff pretty easily. That's not that hard. What is hard is developing a body of work that you really feel is yours. And that only happens when you have to when you have the time to sit down and say, you know, the, of all the stuff I've produced, you know, the, I really feel myself in this one and that one, and these are these are going beyond just being uh, impactful. Uh, they are me. I think that's a really important process. Yeah, and I would add too is when you're working with social media and on those guidelines of constantly pushing content out, let's say daily posts about photos that you've shot, a lot of times I feel like it reduces your creativity and it reduces your connection to the images themselves because you're ultimately not doing it for yourself. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, at that point, you can get absolutely lost in that process for sure. Just totally immersed in the feedback loop of what people think of what you're doing rather than what you think of what you're doing. So yeah, for sure. I, I um, haven't been posting to social media at all over the last, I don't know, year. I think I've put one or two images um, on Instagram. I, I'd be interested to see. There might be three. <laughs> but, um, and I think Which I've is completely ever- countercultural <laughs> to what Instagram tells you to do. Yeah. And I'm a full-time landscape photographer. Um, and I'm enjoying a very successful career. So uh, that's the good news t- for people is that you don't necessarily need uh, Instagram and social media um, to have uh, to have a career if that's what's you know most interesting to a photographer. But yeah, now, it, it can be uh, I think really detrimental if you get too caught up in that stuff. Sure, sure. Now. Composition is something like when I when I started this podcast backed up, I, I 
made a pact with myself not to ask generic composition questions. <laughs> and when I came across your article uh, a little while ago about the different ways that you can compose or construct smaller abstract scenes, it's exactly what I was talking about with more complex ideas of composition that would help people dial that in that, that gets away from, you know, the typical answers to composition. So I would love for you to describe kind of the different ways that you can go about constructing a smaller scene. Yeah, that's the second article in a series of two. Um, so I put out a companion piece back in April to an article of tw from 2015 that was really popular called Five Compositional Patterns Worth Finding in Nature. The new one is Four More Compositional Patterns Worth Finding in Nature. And that one um, does <laughs> go with... What's that? We're up to nine now. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So the first five deal with uh, the grand scenics, the front, the images that have uh, sort of a front to back visual flow, your typical landscape photograph, you know. Um, and the second four deal with those small scenes and abstracts, the ones that that operate in a different way. Uh, and so those patterns, uh, they're basically. Um, patterns of ideas that are easy to find in nature. And some of them are also patterns in a formal sense where they actually have some kind of formal qualities that you can find over and over again. For example, the wallpaper, mm -hmm. that's one of the easiest abstract ones uh, to find and to think about. So basically you have a repeating pattern all over the frame. Um, mm -hmm. And so that sort of thing is exciting to the eye because nature isn't very regular. And when you can find regularity in nature, um, it's pretty exciting for the eye. And what it sees at first is like the sea of sameness, but then the viewer revels in all of the little differences upon closer inspection. And so that makes it delightful for, for the viewer to see that. Um, so, uh, you know, the wallpaper is one that's, uh, I shouldn't say it's easy to find, but uh, it's easy to conceive of. Yeah, it's actually right. kind of hard to find regularity in nature. Right. Um, and then the others I had were the, the mandal, the binary, and the simile. The mandal is kind of based on the wallpaper, but it, where you have sort of an either implosive or explosive composition um, with so, something in the center and stuff surrounding it. Uh, and that's also um, very easy to conceive of. And so in that case, it might not be all the same stuff. It might Something in the center might be different from the stuff that's surrounding it, but Either way, it's this pattern that, that creates these ideas um, of, oh, for example, uh, limitlessness, um, protection, you know, the journey to the center, um, the inner self, any, any kind of those sorts of readings that um, these sorts of patterns lend themselves to uh, really come out with that kind of pattern. And then the other two are really less formal. So the, the binary... That's basically the idea of this versus that. If you can find two things that come together in an interesting way in nature, and it's just got to be just two, otherwise it gets complicated if there are more things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you can find two kind of elements coming together, it can be really exciting to, to put them together, one versus the other. And then the simile, that's even more fun for me. That's my favorite. That's when you find something in nature that looks like something it's not. You know, so I have a number of images that look like um, ocean waves um, and it's mud tiles or um, you know, something like that. <laughs> uh, it's very evocative of something that it's not. 
And those are really fun to find. Sometimes you'll see, you know, a heart shape in something that, um, you know, in the scene shapes and within other elements and, and so on and so forth. I can't help but think, how often do you find your background in art and knowing about like some of the finer things of art and, and painting and sketching, things like that? How, how often do you find that kind of gives you a faster workflow or, or I don't know if workflow is the right word, but helps you to, to helps your eyes to lock on to something a little bit quicker than you find other people do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's why I highly recommend that all photographers become a student of photography and a student of art. Um, I'm constantly, I'm, it's not just the background that, you know, I'm, I think, yeah, I was able to hit the ground running because I've been involved in the arts my entire adult life in one way or another, as an art historian, as a graph, professional graphic designer, as a painter. Um, but uh, it's something that's ongoing for me as well. I'm always going to museums. I I look at a lot of books on all sorts of arts. Um, you know, I, I, I read a lot. And that keeps me going, keeps me thinking and seeing and and keeps me fresh so that I don't kind of stagnate and just fall into patterns. Do you have some essential resources that immediately come to mind for people who want to do more of that? Um, well, I mean, I can recommend a, a lot of great books, I guess. It, I think it really comes down to what each person feels as though they haven't been exposed to. So, you know, if uh, for someone who has never really looked at much, oh, say, uh, painting, that might be a good thing for them to do. Go look at a bunch of painting. Or if they haven't read much about um, the history of photography or something, that could be uh, very interesting. Some of those debates that were uh, being played out in the early years of photography um are, can be really informative about the sorts of decisions that we take for granted these days and can really help you to think about what you're doing so that when you're in the field, you don't have to think about what you're doing. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And I, I think something like, for example, for me, sketching uh, relates back to like high key photography and then thinking different about your exposure and, and how you're constructing an image that way. And just thinking differently about, you know, photography isn't just something that you go out and shoot and have fun doing, even though that that is a huge part of it, but also that it is an art outlet for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example that that you just uh, brought up there with high key photography or. Um, even, you know, the amount of sharpness that you want to put into your photography or, um, um, you know, whether or not, where, where should the focus be? There have been debates about all of these things <laughs> in the history of photography, and it's really interesting. A lot of them are actually pretty sort of freighted um, with, uh, with, with ideas and schools of thought, and, and, and it's a fascinating way to kind of think through what you're doing yeah. to have a handle on all of that. Yeah, even like a thick, like acrylic painting. Like, how does that relate back to texture and photography? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about stuff like that, is, I think, really will help people take the next step in thinking creatively about their images. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And 
And, you know, it's those unexpected, uh, you know, I always say creativity is a messy place. <laughs> you never know where these ideas come from, but the more that you feed your head, the more ideas you will have. Um, you, you know, you just, they all come together in unexpected ways. And the more that you just expose yourself to, to not only works of art, but also the ideas behind them, the more thoughtful your own production becomes. What do you have coming up the rest of this year, even going into 2020? What's the future like for you that people can check out, get more involved with what you're doing? Um, well, I have a whole bunch of talks coming up. I'll be, um, next month I'll be going to, uh, Oregon and San Francisco and New York, t- um, to give talks. Uh, and, um, after that I have a bunch of workshops that I'll be, uh, releasing. Some I've already just started to release, but I've got my winter Dolomites workshop. I've got summer Dolomites, uh, the French Alps. I've got another one coming up in, um, Death Valley that I'm going to open. A lot of these may be sold out by the time this episode airs. <laughs> you never know. Sometimes spots open up. I've also got a Redwoods workshop coming, and uh, so I'm, I'm ramping the, the workshops back up again, and that that's pretty exciting. I'm also branching out to some new areas. One other thing that uh, people might want to make note of, um, since we've discussed color theory, is that I will be doing a post-processing seminar in Munich, Germany, in October of 2020. Uh, and that will be in conjunction with a workshop happening in Bavaria. Um, so anyone who might want to come out and do both um, should have a really a good time and, and some media ideas to work with out there. I mean, that would be an awesome experience. I think it will be. All right. Well, thanks so much, Aaron, for coming on, sharing your thoughts on photography. Insightful as always. Oh, always a pleasure, David. Thanks so much for inviting me.